And then the FDA knocked on our door and said, hey, <laughs> this is uh, has, has tripped the limits of exemption because it's the first over-the-counter device for women to do what it is that you're doing. You need to show us that this is safe and effective for women to use at home in a home environment. And so we went through the FDA clearance process, got a 510K. Hello, welcome to episode 44 of the NetTech Podcast. You join me, your host, Karandeep Singh Badwell. Under this episode, I have founder and CEO of Proof, a company dedicated to empowering women at every stage of life to track their own hormones quickly and easily at home. Amy went through the exact same challenges as many women do during infertility and leveraged her expertise to develop an approachable remedy. She discovered that for herself and others, the crucial element in achieving pregnancy was surprisingly uncomplicated. Comprehending the roles of hormones, their distinct functions, and ways to maintain equilibrium. This knowledge completely changed Amy's approach to fertility, ultimately resulting in the birth of her second child. On this episode, she discusses the lack of education around healthy conceiving in the school systems, the misconceptions around ovulation in the current healthcare system, revealing the surprising ways that traditional off-the-shelf fertility tests often fall short in truly testing ovulation. She also explains how traditional fertility tests available over-the-counter do not accurately measure ovulation. Additionally, she highlights the inadequate coverage for fertility treatments in health insurance plans and a discussion on the regulatory journey her device that was initially exempt from the pre-market clearance by the FDA, but eventually had to undergo a 510k process after contact with the FDA. Welcome to the show, Amy. How are you today? I'm doing fantastic. Perfect. So to kick off with the first question, would you say that women's health is currently underrepresented in healthcare? And if so, why would you say that is the case? Uh, absolutely. Um, I don't know why it's the case. Um, I mean, women are 50% of the population. We should have 50% of the funding. We should have 50% of the solutions. Um, I'm not really sure why it's that way, but I do know that women that are trying to change it See, I already said it. Are women? Women are trying to change it. They're they're women like me who've had a personal experience and start products to kind of fix the gaps that are in current healthcare. Um, it's very different than I would say venture world outside of women's health. It's what idea is going to make me the most money. It's less about fixing kind of gaps in care. So surely there's a lot of gaps in the market where women's health is underrepresented. Uh, of course, you work with infertility, but what other pieces of women's health would you say that are also underrepresented? Um, I mean, we recently just went through the overturning of Roe v. Wade in the U.S. Um, that was a huge blow um, because, you know, <laughs> women have a lot of things in healthcare that men just don't experience. And so we're not given autonomy over our healthcare or we're not understood. Um, for example, you know, abortion care is something that is back at front of table, um, as well as things like PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome, um, endometriosis. These are very, very common, almost as a common as diabetes, but they're very, very underfunded. And I think it's because 
it's a female only condition um, and people funding healthcare don't experience it and don't have first, first world um, exposure to it. And so maybe it's something that's kind of not th- seen as something to focus on, whereas diabetes, um, heart disease, all those kind of things, they affect everybody. I would say not equally, but affect everybody. Swallowing on from that, you specialize in fertility. How exactly did you come up with the idea of your company, Proof? I had the pleasure of going through infertility and recurrent miscarriage myself. Um, and just living through the journey and being told I had unexplained infertility, which means nobody knew what was wrong with me being told, um, I can't help you because you haven't been trying long enough, or you haven't had enough miscarriages. Um, and then finally getting the treatment and not knowing what it was. So having to do a $40,000 procedure of IVF in order to conceive, I felt like there had to be some other option. There had to be a different way. We had to kind of reform that. I mean, for infertility and miscarriage are up there with um, getting a cancer diagnosis or getting um, diagnosed with AIDS or some incurable disease in the the way that affects a woman's mental state. I mean, 87% of women are clinically depressed that go through infertility and miscarriage. Um, And so I wanted to help provide other solutions and answers to couples going through this so that they didn't have to wait till it was too late. And they didn't have to wait until IVF was the only option. So for the couples out there looking to start their pregnancy and someone has been through that journey, what knowledge would you share with them? You know, test early, get the screening early, go into your doctor early, Um, you know, being as proactive as you possibly can. Um, You know, people call it, you know, type A personality, Um, get all the information. Um, You know, when you start to conceive, a lot of women realize that they've never been educated about this. They never knew what a healthy menstrual cycle was. They never got taught that in school. Um, and so, you know, it's like a whole new thing that you have to educate yourself around this whole new thing. Um, and, you know, frankly, one out of five couples have fertility issues. And so the sooner you can kind of get testing and be proactive and have conversations, you know, learn about it. I think the better you're going to be because studies show that when couples are engaged in their fertility journey and they get that education and they go in and they have active conversations with doctors that it leads to faster time to treatment and lower treatment costs. So would you say that currently there is a lack of education around this and what can people start doing to perhaps change that? (laughs) Absolutely. I mean, I have a, um, my son that I had via IVF, he is 12. And so he is in middle school And I actually emailed the school and I said, hey, are you doing any type of sex education? They said, no, we don't do that. We replaced it with our don't do drugs education. So these kids are getting nothing. My daughter, when she gets into fifth grade, will have the, this is what your period is. This is normal, that kind of conversation. But there's no type of sex education, um, 
And so it's up to the responsibility of parents and to women, to couples to kind of get that education themselves. Um, Luckily, you know, the current, um, I would say the internet (laughs) um, knows that there's a huge gap. There's a lot of companies that are trying to put out a lot of educational content. There are doctors that have platforms on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube that do a lot of education. Um, So luckily for us, there are a lot of places to get that education. I would just be careful on where you're getting it from. Um, But yeah, it's pretty much, you know, something that you actually actively have to go seek to get that information because it's not in any of the textbooks. It's not in in any of the education. In fact, uh, OBGYNs, reproductive endocrinologists that are specialized in fertility have very, very few education materials on the menstrual cycle and the hormones. And a lot of times you have to go to a specialist that has specialized in hormones, which are hard to find to get that kind of, get that kind of knowledge. So it's a tough, tough situation. Um, but there's, there's definitely resources out there. I completely agree with you. When I look back to when I was at school studying biology, uh, women's health was probably only covered for like about a week. And that was the last that we ever heard of it. So I completely agree with you. The educational system does not cover it to its full scope, unfortunately. Yeah. I mean, it's a hard subject. Nobody really wants to talk about bleeding and, you know, all that kind of stuff. But um, I mean, something that affects a woman every single day of her life. I mean, this is like, the fifth vital sign, her menstrual cycle helps her um, blood circulate. It helps her mind focus on on uh, specific tasks. It helps her be creative. Um, it helps her bones be strong. And so to totally not talk about this, I think is a huge disservice. So following on from that, since starting this company and beginning your research into infertility and pregnancy in general, what would you say is perhaps not so much common knowledge about this topic that you found out? Um, so the reason that I founded this company is, so our, my company does um, hormone testing and looks at the process of ovulation. And so ovulation is, you know, basically your body, a woman's body will produce an egg and then will prepare the uterus for implantation for possible pregnancy. And then at the end of the month, the pregnancy didn't happen she will slough off her uterine lining and her monthly bleed and then have the cycle all over again. Um, And so what the common misconception was is that ovulation is about release of the egg. And if you have intercourse during that period of time when you release the egg, that's you've ovulated and you're good, right? So ovulation was yes or no. And so when I went in for testing, they said, well, you're getting pregnant. You're obviously ovulating. There was an egg. And they crossed off, you know, ovulation issues from their sheet. It turns out not all ovulation is created equal. Ovulation is the egg has to be released, but then the uterus has to be prepared for implantation to receive that embryo. And if you don't have the right hormones and your hormones are out of balance, that can cause problems with ovulation that can make it much more difficult to either conceive or hold a pregnancy. And so there's things called ovulation tests. You can buy them at any grocery store. You can buy them on Amazon. They're very, it's turns positive, means you're in your fertile window, time intercourse. 
people think an ovulation test tells you that you've ovulated and it doesn't. <laughs> I can, I can see how, you know, this is like a common misconception. Um, but these hormone, this, this test measures hormones. It tells you that you're fertile. It doesn't mean that you actually ovulated, that you have a healthy ovulation to support conception. And that's why everyone was getting misdiagnosed or not diagnosed. And that's why a lot of women are, you know, couples are having to do IVF because they're not understanding this simple hormone issue. And so because of this huge problem, this huge gap that we saw in healthcare, I'm going to help, right? I had this issue. I have my kids. Um, I, I had all these friends that were kept coming to me saying, Amy, what did you do to get pregnant? I'm suffering too. I tell them they get pregnant. And then one day my friend called me and she's like, we got to do something. Like we, we have to figure this out because so many people need this type of technology. Um, and so I just, we just wanted to add additional information and additional resources to help couples understand what was going on so they can go have better conversations with physicians and get the right treatment for whatever it is that they needed. So on the topic of IVF, for perhaps the listeners are not too familiar with the process, what does the process of IVF look like? And of course, what are the drawbacks or perhaps the limitations of that process? So IVF uh, is in vitro fertilization. Um, it is a the most advanced fertility treatment we have. Um, I call it a medical band-aid to getting pregnant, meaning that it um, puts a band-aid over anything that could possibly be wrong. And the, the doctors and the labs basically do all the hard part for you. So you take a whole bunch of medication at the beginning of your cycle, you stimulate a whole bunch of eggs. They go in there with these little needles and they aspirate all the eggs. Then they ask your partner to collect a semen sample. They isolate the best of the best sperm. They take the sperm, they inject it in the egg and they let that embryo grow in a dish. Then they find the best, most healthy one. And then they put that back in your uterus and then they give you more medications to support implantation. And so what they're doing is they're hedging all their bets. They're removing the fact that you have to fertilize yourself. They're doing that in the lab. They're, you know, taking out by chance this sperm and, and this egg. They're taking the best ones out of typically they get about 10 eggs a cycle, the best out of 10. Um, and so it's making it, you know, taking all most of the risk factors out and trying to have a really healthy um, chance at pregnancy. The problem is, is very, very stressful. You are pumped with so many hormones. You have to take off a bunch of work um, because there's a lot of scans, there's a lot of blood draws. It's a very intensive um, month period. Um, and it's very expensive. Um, currently in the US, a single cycle ranges between 20 and $30,000, depending on where you go, what additional services you add to IVF. You can do genetic testing of the embryo. You can do um, you know, re receptivity assays of your uterus, like all this stuff to ensure higher success rates. Um, and so I think the biggest drawback is the time and cost of this treatment. And so the number one cause of infertility is problems with ovulation. And so if we can identify a problem with ovulation and instead prescribe medications to help you ovulate better, then you take a $30,000 treatment and you turn it into $200, $300. <laughs> and so 
that's that's a huge huge difference just by having an additional information because a lot like i would say half of the women going half of the couples going through um ivf have unexplained infertility that's why they're there and many many of those are just a simple ovulatory problem that hasn't been diagnosed properly so for the non-us listeners the us has an insurance based system would ivs typically be covered under the insurance that is this something that's always privately funded <laughs> It is almost always privately funded. Um, there are companies like Google and uh, Starbucks and Facebook that offer fertility benefits, um, but typically the, the fertility benefits have a lifetime cap, which can be 10, 20,000 for a lifetime. That sometimes doesn't bring you home one child. So if you think about if you have, if you want two or three children, um, it's, it's, it's a big, <laughs> it's a big cost. So on the topic of the U S are there any particular states or cities that perhaps are dedicated more resources towards dealing with this issue? Yeah, there's what's called mandate states. So, um, Maryland, Massachusetts, New York, I think are the biggest, biggest ones are mandate states that mean it's under, um, state law that fertility care is covered under health insurance. Um, but depending on who you are, your insurance may or may not cover it. You may have to go through a lot of red tape. Um, for example, you must document that you've tried to conceive for two years before they'll initiate coverage. You must have, you know, X, Y, and Z testing. So even if you live in a mandate state where IVF is covered, it's still really, really important to go in there as soon as possible and to get all that testing done. Um, just because it's covered doesn't mean that that's the right pathway for you. Because <laughs> again, even if you're not paying for it, you still have to take off work. You still have to go through the medications. Um, it is it's not the most pleasant of experiences. So if you could at all avoid it um, with additional testing or additional conversations, I would highly recommend it. So as we were discussing offline earlier, you mentioned that you had a very interesting regulatory journey. How did that go for you? Yeah, so we have a, a in vitro diagnostic that helps confirm successful ovulation. And so we either can confirm ovulation or we cannot. And if you can't confirm ovulation, you could have an ovulatory issue that needs medical intervention. And so I am not a fancy VC person. I don't have, you know, a bunch of money lying around. I don't have rich uncles or anything. And so when we had this idea, it was simply to give back and to help other couples with this information. And so we had to find funding somewhere. And so um, myself and um, another PhD level scientist um, got together and read the FDA regulations. And this type of product category was a class one exempt device, meaning that all we had to do was register and list, make it in a facility that was G CGMP, FDA registered, and we didn't have to do any type of pre-market clearance or approvals. So we did. We sold it for about a year and a half. Um and then the FDA knocked on our door and said, hey, <laughs> this is uh, has, has tripped the limits of exemption because it's the first over-the-counter device for women to do what it is that you're doing. You need to show us that this is safe and effective for women to use at home in a home environment. And so 
we went through the FDA clearance process, got a 510K, um, did a whole bunch of different studies and research showing that, yes, women could read the stick. They could know if it was positive or negative. They knew what it meant. Um, and so it was very interesting how I would say the FDA can change their mind um, based off of just how things kind of p- progress. I mean, another another really big example is like COVID, right? They made this EUA rule <laughs> as opposed to 510k because it was so it's too hard to do a 510k we had to innovate and get things out faster than a 510k could could um could do that and so i would say things change um you know situations change and we, we worked with the FDA and we got our clearance because we thought that that was the right thing to do. Like we want to make sure women use this safely and effectively and we're getting the right information because it's about increasing knowledge. And if you can't give that woman the right knowledge to have those conversations, the test is pointless. For the female listeners who are perhaps looking into getting into this industry, what advice would you give to them? Hey, um, it's hard. (laughs) It's really hard. Um, The bar is so much different for a female founder than um, a well-connected male founder. Um, The biggest case would be, and I don't know this guy's name, maybe you do, the guy from WeWork. Um, He just had so much money. He put this company together called WeWork and it failed and failed miserably. And so he came up with another idea and it was just an idea on a napkin and got you know hundreds of millions of dollars for the second idea after his first one was a horrible disaster and it's like why right whereas in with a woman she has to have an idea she has to put that idea to life and then she has to show that it is traction revenue building before she can get any money and now I know that's not always the case, but that is pretty standard of what I've heard is that a bar is very high for a woman to do. So she's got to have a platform, an app, a service, a product in market with sales before anybody will say, oh, here's some money. Whereas a well-connected male founder, hey, I have this really cool idea on this napkin. Oh, cool. Here, let me just you know send a bunch of money your way. <laughs> right? And so- you know, women get, I think the new stat is 1.7% of total funding, and then the men get all the rest. And so there's very few dollars for her to get. But then once she gets the dollars, she has a much better return on those dollars than the male counterparts. Um, and so hopefully the ties will turn. But the biggest advice I give to women, be strappy, be outside the box. Think of other ways. We did a crowdfunding campaign to get the first $45,000 of our company to do prototypes. And we found we didn't need to manufacture it ourselves. There was companies out there that could do it that we could just pay them for. And so if you have an idea that you want to pursue, think about alternate ways besides raising money. Can you do crowdfunding? Can you get bank loans? Can you apply for federal grants? Um, can you do it without money? Is there some way to do something with little, much littler cost, <laughs> right? And so, you know, try to think of other ways because it is possible we need women founders. We need what we are building because 
these men aren't going to know about endometriosis, not going to know about fertility issues that female face. Right. And so women have to do this. We have to figure out better ways to do it. Um, and so that's my advice. Just, you know, <laughs> think out the box, outside the box, be scrappy, um, find a different way. So on the topic of crowdfunding, as you mentioned, what does that process actually look like setting up a crowdfunding campaign? And what would you say are the advantages of this over, let's say, traditional methods of fundraising? Yeah, so there's two two flavors of crowdfunding. One is um, Kickstarter and Indiegogo, where you basically, somebody donates money, and in return, you can give them a free product. Um, and then the other type of crowdfunding is equity crowdfunding. So they're giving you money, but you're giving them piece of your company. Um, the one that we did was uh, the first one. So we went through Indiegogo and people would donate money. And in return, we would give them the first test that came off the line. Right. Um, and for us, it was good because it gave us the money to make the tests. And then we we gave it to them and then we used them to, you know, kind of fine tune it and get the best information we possibly could to make a good product before we did a commercial launch. Um, the hard part about crowdfunding is all you really technically need is some type of promotional materials. So we bought a $50 logo off of Upwork. I put all the promotional you know, stuff together using PowerPoint, export as JPEG. You write your own words. You can do it all yourself. Um, that's all you really need. But at the end of the day, no one's going to just find your page. <laughs> There's this thing called marketing where you have to know, let people know that that's there. And so you have to account for that. So you either have to pay a marketing agency or, you know, um, you have to think about that beforehand. Um, otherwise, you're going to get no traffic and no funding to your page. Um, the second one is as equity crowdfunding. Um, I think that's okay too. Um, drawbacks are the platform takes quite a bit of the money that you that you raise and takes some additional equity depending on what platform you're using. The second one is everything is very public. So all your numbers, your stats um, are all public, which means your, com your competitors are also going to see how many sales you have, what's your strategy, what do you think you're going to win on, um, which can be a little positive or negative, depending on who you are. Um, so yeah, those are the, that's my advice on crowdfunding. So if we could go back in time and talk to the younger Amy during the time of completing a PhD in pharmacology, what advice would you be giving to her? Uh, that's a hard one. Um, I don't know. Like I, I, I often think that like, what would I go back and do differently? And I don't really know if I would go back and do anything differently. I think, you know, as my career has progressed, I've always looked at the next step and I think that's important. So I started off my career trying to be pre-med and I thought, okay, I'm going to be pre-med. I'm going to go to med school. That was like my second step. And then during school, I realized I couldn't handle needles. I would pass out when I saw a needle. Like, yeah. Probably being a medical doctor is not the right path for me. <laughs> and so I switched to um, being a bench scientist 
and getting a PhD in pharmacology. I was like, okay, great. This is exactly what I want to do. Um, and then during my PhD, um, I always wanted to work in biotech. And so the next step was doing a postdoc and doing a postdoc at a non-academic setting um, is what I did, but I still did a postdoc because you don't want to limit your options. Um, and so I think it's always like, have an idea where you're going, but try not to project out your entire life, just kind of the next step and work towards that next step. And then if during that next step, you veer over, great, veer over and then think of the next step there, right? And so when I was getting my uh, postdoc, I was out doing my postdoc, that's when I dealt with infertility and recurrent miscarriage. And I had this idea of starting a company. I didn't do it, just had an idea. Then from there, I got a faculty position at Kansas State University. And I was like, okay, I want to try to build this idea. And so I used the tuition credits as a faculty member to get my MBA at, in my lunch times and at nights because I knew I wanted to have a company. And so just that idea of taking it one step forward, right? And so I got my MBA, I left the academic setting, and then I started my company. And so that's kind of, it's kind of that natural progression. Okay, today I'm doing this, tomorrow I want to do that. How do I get to that next level? What should I be doing today to get over there to tomorrow? And then when you're at tomorrow, again, reassess, where do I want to go, right? <laughs> so I don't think I would ever change anything, but to tell myself, you know, it's really important to know your next step and to make sure that you are doing something to achieve that goal. Um, and if that's something you're like, man, I really did not want to actually do that. You've learned something and now you shouldn't be achieving something. You should go pivot and go to another something else. On the topic of next steps, what are the next steps of Proof? Are you perhaps looking to target different jurisdictions around the world or perhaps release further products? Yes. So right now we're mo mostly in the US, um, but we do have regulatory approvals um, for the UK and the EU. So we're actively trying to open distribution and partners partnerships in other countries. Um, I've seen an influx of people oh my gosh, I have that problem too. Like you really, Prove really needs to come over here. Um, so that's kind of where we're headed uh, right now. Would you say that this issue is more prevalent in certain parts of the world? Have you seen something like that? It's prevalent everywhere. <laughs> like it is a uh, worldwide issue. Like, I don't know if you guys like have seen the news where it's like the falling birth rates. I mean, like there's countries like Japan and North Korea and China, right. That have, are showing, you know, population decline for the first time ever. And we're, we're below capacity to reproduce ourselves. So when the birth rate is, is less than 2.3, you know, children per couple, that's when you can't continue on your, population, right? <laughs> it's going to be a major issue because you think about it, we're the working class. If we don't replace the working class, that country is doomed. What are they going to do? They are not going to be able to produce anything. They're not going to have a strong military. Um, so really, you know, it's a huge worldwide issue that I think we're going to start kind of coming up against, but you know, it's governments not supporting 
family building. It's high infertility rates due to lifestyle issues, advanced maternal age, the cost of raising children. Um, and so majority, a lot of factors, but yeah, I mean, it's a really, really big problem um, worldwide. So running a business and maintaining a family is quite time intensive, but in the small amount of free time that you do get, what do you usually get up to? I love my Peloton. I don't know if you, do you know this? Peloton? Yes, it's the it's like an exercise bike with the TV screen on there, I believe. Yes, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, so I have one in my basement. Um, I got it probably three years ago or so. Um, but it's my opportunity to basically de-stress and not think about work. Um, it's exercise and that that video screen is different instructors that are just, you know reminiscing about life in the 90s or the 2000s or like remember this song and that song and it's just for me is so amazing to just get that exercise and to like invigorate <laughs> um so i'm very obsessed with it um the other thing is i love amusement parks i love roller coasters so kind of a random fact about me but yeah i love um you know, I'm getting my kids in, in it too. My my older one hates going upside down. My younger one loves it. So. Amy, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show. What one piece of advice would you leave the listeners with today? I would say uh, follow your gut, follow your heart. Um, if, if the listener is trying to conceive, if you think that there is a problem, there probably is a problem and to reach out and get the resources that you need. Um, if you're a founder and you know, you have a good idea, think of ways to do it. Um, uh, find, find a way it's probably a technology we need to know. Um, and if you're an investor or some, somebody that's in the industry that supports um, please look at women's health and women founders. Um, what they're doing is really amazing. And what we're able to put together with little to no capital is just mind blowing sometimes. So um, I think it's a good investment. Thank you for listening to episode 44 of the MedTech podcast. If you have not already done so, please subscribe. If you wish to learn more about Amy, you can connect with her on LinkedIn or visit a company website, the links of which are provided in the description. If there are any particular topics or guests you'd like for me to have on the show in future, then feel free to reach out.